0: Hey everybody, this is Adam. Thanks for tuning in to episode 4 of This Heretical Life. Normally, Brian would be giving the introduction, and when we originally recorded it, he was giving the introduction. Um, But, regrettably, we had some technical difficulties when we are trying to record this episode. And so, I wanted to explain that as you go through, I'm I'm still learning the whole skills of editing and putting everything together. And so, there may be a couple of moments where uh, you can hear a break or a pause or what have you and then there towards the end of the recording my end of the recording dropped out completely and it's just Brian continuing on so um just so you know there may be a couple things missing but I I don't think you'll miss anything important so I hope that you go ahead and and power through and listen and hopefully uh, get a lot out of what we talk about today it was a lot of fun discussing these things with Brian so sit back enjoy and um I'll see you on the end.
1: Good evening, everyone, and welcome back to this heretical live. You are listening to episode four. Can you believe it? Episode four. We have made it into, uh, oh, no, I guess this kind of puts us in prequel Star Wars, uh, prequel Star Wars trilogy land episode four
0: that's 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 not uh, well not as prequel star wars yeah yeah
1: Yeah. this sort of makes us. uh if you go by order in which the episodes were made we're sort of in phantom menace territory
0: which is which is really not good let's not think about this for much longer
1: annoying annoying eight-year-old's going to show up here in a minute but episode four, that's pretty cool. When we started this, it was purely for fun, and it's still purely for fun. I haven't made any money yet. I'm trusting that Adam hasn't made any money yet either. Because <laughs> uh, if he if he does, he's sort of obligated to share it with me. But uh, I am enjoying this. Um, I know Adam's enjoying it. I hope our listening audience out there is enjoying it as much as we are as well. Today, uh, Today's episode, I think, is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, As always, I'm Brian Thomas. The much handsomer voice that I've been talking to is Adam Leggett.
0: Hey, everybody.
1: He is uh, my very, very good friend and also my brother-in-law and double brother-in-law in in that sense that I married your sister and then you married my sister. I married your
0: sister, yeah. I think
1: to get back at me, I'm not really sure, Um, (laughs) but now it's one of those things that we're friends, we're really good friends but even if we weren't, you know, we'd really still, it. yeah, still be in laws. Yeah, it would still be in laws. Still have to kind yeah. of put up with each other. Um, so, but today, today we're going to kind of continue the conversation we were having last episode, in a sense that last episode we kind of talked about what you might call uh, the big idea that sort of undergirds some of the more what, what people of our previous persuasion, what Baptists and Evangelicals would probably consider the more peculiar aspects of our respective mm-hmm. traditions. Um, and we were hoping to talk about some of those peculiarities last episode and ran out of time. So all we really ended up being able to talk about was sort of the big picture idea of why, theologically, why we have them, and then practically that you spent a lot of time talking about and made a really good point about was practically why these things why these peculiarities are important and why they matter coming mm. up out of that theology
0: yeah for sure and I would really encourage if there's anybody that's picked up in episode four and you haven't listened to episode three um, you know some of you may be really familiar with the theological arguments from both sides and if you are that's fine but if some of you don't you know and you're I um, mean you, you may all you may be interested in is you know some of the practical things that are going to look different, but if you if you do care to know uh, about some of the underlying reasons, like Brian was saying, uh, then it might be to your advantage to go back and listen to episode three before you continue on with episode four, because I feel like it'll give you a lot of groundwork and a lot of um, just explanation as to why you know the, the things we're about to explain or talk about they may sound a little strange if you don't know the why behind. Why we do them? So, yeah. Uh, you you may you may find it, like I said a minute ago, you, you may find it advantageous to oh, uh, yeah. to yeah. go back and listen to episode three. Not only that, but it would bump our numbers just a little bit. So it would, you
1: know. You know and our numbers are are uh, could always use a bump, you know.
0: Oh, always. A bump would not hurt us.
1: Um, I can't agree with you any about what you just um, because. But I I think it's really important to go back and listen to that episode before you listen to this one because uh, the things we're going to talk about, particularly just – spoiler, what I'm going to talk about from the orthodox perspective of talking about icons and why icons matter and why they're important. Icons are one of those things I did not understand, I did not get until after I understood the big theological and practical concepts we talked about last episode. Mm-hmm. And then once I did, icons went from being things that were really weird and inexplicable and and perhaps even detrimental to proper spiritual formation to things that I understand and recognize as still, still wrapping my mind around them from the weird perspective. Um, but I think understand their, their beauty and their importance and how, when they're approached correctly, they, they, they're very, very helpful, uh, to proper spiritual formation.
0: Yeah, for sure. You know, one more thing as we, as we start to, um, or I guess before we start getting into these different things we're going to talk about, uh, there is some bleed over right between orthodoxy, um, like Eastern Orthodoxy and Catholicism in the sense that the things that I'm going to be talking about you guys have a version of yeah, or and yeah. the things that you're going to be talking about we have a version of uh but they're going to look a little different and it's not that it's not that we were uh trying to say okay well Brian's going to pick the things that you know have nothing to do with Catholicism or mm-hmm. vice versa but just saying okay these are going to be some of the things that really stand out right like when you walk into an orthodox sanctuary uh you you can't like it, it's not po- I mean it's not possible to miss the icons like they take front and center stage it's it's um it's a very prominent part of of yeah. uh, of worship yeah. right and i think to i mean uh, i don't know probably not to any lesser degree with catholicism right you may not you may not walk in and notice uh in the sanctuary itself, a bunch of statues it depends on which, you know, which church you go to and whatnot. Mm. Uh, but some of the things that will always be a part of a Catholic service is the things that I'm going to be talking about.
1: Yeah, and um, before we, we're going to kind of recap that those big things really quickly. But before we do, uh, we always try to pick a fun topic to talk about as well, which we totally forgot last week. We did not talk about anything fun. <laughs> and the people who turned in just to hear the fun topic um, got nothing I feel mm. like we we really we really just we let down that key part of our demographic and so we're not going to repeat that mistake so today's topic is um, since uh, big big to do out in theaters right now is the release of the movie uh, Joker with Joaquin Phoenix that, For some reason – I haven't watched the movie yet. For some reason, wants to tell the origin story of the Joker, which is crazy. And secondly, wants to tell the origin story of Joker without Batman being involved. Hmm. It kind of raised the question, like if you could take any villain – it could be a comic book villain. It could be a villain from other well-known cultural uh, touchstones or or pop culture stories. But if you could take a villain – and say – just kind of cut him off from his his uh, you know uh, protagonist and say we're going to tell his story and just his story and not worry about, as Joker does, Batman or worry about if it was, say, Lex Luthor or Superman or if it was a sheriff, Sheriff Nottingham, we're not going to worry about Robin Hood. What villain would you choose and why? Hmm. Um, so that's our fun topic. I still have not decided yet. But Adam, you said you have an answer, and you also said your answer was kind of weird. So I am really intrigued.
0: Yeah. Maybe maybe some people won't think it's weird. Maybe some people think it's juvenile. But um, either word you want to use to describe my pick, I totally respect the fact that you you know would choose that word, because I admit that it is both of those things, probably. Today, as I was at work and all this, I was thinking, okay, my goodness, you know, like who who do you, who would I want to focus on? And not only who would I want to focus on, but I, w- I want to focus on somebody that you don't kind of like the Joker, really, like that you don't know much about, right? Because like, it's not like you're picking a a villain that there's a bunch of backstory already out there, and you you know most people know where they came from and why and all that kind of yeah. stuff. So, as odd as this is, growing up, I can remember distinctly. Uh, watching, I think through the movies that I used to watch as a little kid and, and trying to think through who the villains were and, uh, the ones that intrigued me the most for different reasons. And like, okay, like who, like, why are they the way they are? Like, it just does, like, they're really, I guess all villains are, but they're really extreme, right? Like, it's just, where did this come from? How did, how did this person get to where they are to be who they are? And I decided that if I had to pick a... Origin story for any villain, it would be Cruella Deville from 101 Dalmatians.
1: Ah, okay, okay. Yep, uh, you
0: know, it was just uh, like she's, um, the the hate and uh, it, it's. I don't know. It's weird. it, it you you she, go back and forth between show. trying to figure yeah. out if she's if she's hateful or if she's just so like. I don't know if "perverted" is the right way word to use because I don't know. I mean, I don't know maybe, but like, is it because she's hateful or is it because she's just so egotistically obsessed with yeah, yeah. what she thinks is beautiful? Like, I don't know. Like, in somehow in my mind, that's a really intriguing. Like, what is it exactly that it's making her tick? It's because with some villains, you know, it's pretty obvious, right? Like, they want to they want to take over the world or they want to. It's a power trip, right? Mm. But hers doesn't seem to be just because she wants to, you know, be. I mean, she's just dogs, right? Like it's. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't seem she's not trying to take power from somebody, right? Like the dogs don't have any power to take. Um, she's just evil, right? Cruella yeah. de Vil. She's mm-hmm. just she's just the worst. And it would make more sense if she wanted to kill cats <laughs> or or I something like that. that. But these these cute little puppies, like who, who would do that? Why would why would someone? why would someone be so, so cruel and heartless? So I don't know. I just, that was the first thing that came to my mind. And the more that I thought about it, the more I was like, yeah, I want to know what, why she is the way she is. What, well, you know, what's, what's her deal. Very,
1: very interesting choice, but also a lot of, um, a lot of potential there because she does have a peculiar, she does have that peculiar sense of villainy about her. Mm. She's also just got a ton of personality. Um, You know, very, a ton of flair, uh, very dynamic screen presence. So uh, definitely not a bland villain at all. Right. Um, Plus you picked one, you're you're going to get your wish. I don't know if you know this or not. And don't judge me for knowing this. But (laughs) I think next year uh, there's a live action Cruella de Vil origin story film coming out. I'm pretty sure it's Emma Stone. Really uh, playing the young Quill uh, Deville, yeah.
0: See, I did not know that.
1: Uh, See, so look at that. Disney is anticipating your needs and meeting them.
0: Hey, I tell you what, it's it's the magical kingdom, right? Like that's what they do. Uh,
1: true, true. So, uh, so yeah, no, I I uh, I respect that pick a lot. So okay, yeah. I was thinking, I haven't settled yet, but I was thinking maybe sharp tooth. From the Land Before Time.
0: Jesus. Okay.
1: <laughs> but I'm not. I'll probably change that. I'll probably change that. But that's just where, okay. I, was, where I was leaning. <laughs> Either that, or I was thinking also. What about the hunter from Bambi? Yeah,
0: you know, there you
1: go. From his side of the story, he's just Wait. he's just the bad guy who shoots Bambi's right. mother, and and I think we just don't we don't know enough about him. I bet he's got a really interesting backstory. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, I'm pretty I'll, sure, I'll say pretty pretty
0: sure um, I've met. I'm pretty sure I've met him.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I just want. I want Disney to make a movie that's just about a hunter. You know, and and it's just this 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 story that just revolves around this hunter. And it has its own plot, its own everything, and then at the very end, maybe like in a post credit scene, you find out you've been <laughs> watching this story and sympathizing with and cheering on the guy who shot Bambi's mother. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that would be so hilarious. That would be, so hilarious. That'd be great. <laughs> um, all right, well, we'll get back to serious talk now. <clears throat> uh, so uh, last episode, we talked about really one main topic. We kind of divided it into two halves which was really uh, what we called, or what I termed, and you were nice enough to play along with, uh, the idea of incarnational theology, uh, which was basically putting every aspect of our faith tradition, realizing that everybody has to have a tradition, Mm -hmm. um, and reorienting all of it around not just the reality that that Christ was made flesh um, and lived and died for our died for our sins and died for the salvation and restoration of all mankind and of all creation and rose from the dead because that's a reality that all Christian traditions point to, hmm. but then really looking at what does it mean to relate to that um, According not, I don't remember the exact phraseology, but Christ becoming flesh is not just a reality that happened once upon time, but mm-hmm. it's a reality that reshapes all reality and how we recognize and relate to God, because it radically changes and alters the way God recognizes and relates to us. For sure. And so, if God made, made Himself flesh to come and dwell among us and restore us then how do we, in our flesh, um, participate in that restorative act uh, and and really enter into that restorative act? And so once you started looking at it from that perspective, that you and I both kind of had that paradigm shift leads to looking at things sacramentally and believing in sacraments and accepting the Lord's Supper and baptism as sacraments as these Things of essence and substance, and of, you know, of earthly matter. That nevertheless have, I don't want to call it spiritual components, but but they are things that are blessed by God in such a way and used by God in such a way that they impart grace.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and so I talked about that the uh, from the theological perspective, and then you talked about how not only did that create this theological reality, but then it compels us to make uh, habits of the heart, I think is the term you used, if you want to recap mm-hmm. that real quick for us.
0: Yeah, or or habits for our heart might be, I mean, might be another way to put it. In, this, in, in short, it's the idea that because God made us both physical and spiritual, that what we do in the physical impacts who we are internally. And... Uh, who we are internally uh, in in reverse I think it's fair to say affects who we are physically too yeah, to to yeah. a large extent but that they're they're they they go together that you can't separate those two so that the habits that we form uh physically that they over time affect our soul mm. it 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 directs the attention and the affection of our heart towards uh what our actions are directed towards so if we have habits of reverence and respect when we come into worship that it affects the way our heart sees the experience of worship, essentially. Yeah, um, And that there are specific ways that we, we need to, to discipline ourselves, or I, I would argue, and I think the church would teach, um, both, both of our churches would teach, that mm-hmm. there are, are disciplines, there are rituals, there are habits that we participate in, on a constant and a, a continual basis because we believe that these things help us to focus our heart uh, towards Jesus, towards the Lord, uh, towards the gospel, towards the goodness of who he is and what he has done for us. Uh, and so just from a practical perspective, because we're physical beings and because God has condescended to men flow a state, uh, that he has, uh, he's, you know, he wants us to worship him with all of who we are, not just our minds and our uh, our attitudes, but with our bodies.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and you can't, and habits are so, and I guess you don't really know, or I didn't, I'll speak personally, didn't realize how much habits dictate until you start trying to break habits and start trying to make new ones. And you realize, mm-hmm. man, habits are just – it's just our, your body gets essentially trained to do certain things at certain times of the day or in certain places that really create these patterns and, and, and sort of just – well, I'm trying to think of another word besides habits to describe what habits do. But mm-hmm. it, it really starts to dictate to you, you know, your uh, unconscious patterns – start to dictate to your heart and to your mind what your heart and your mind are, can be all about. And it's really, right. I didn't realize it, even though i would probably been told it all my life, how much habits mattered until you try to, until I started trying to make new habits and started trying to break old habits and realize, man, these things are hard. Uh,
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the habits that we have in life, I have found, are either inwardly focused or outwardly focused, right? Always. They're either self-focused or other-focused. So the things that we do in ritual, it's important for us to stop and ask, okay, is this habit something that I'm doing that is about making me more comfortable, about making me more happy with myself, about me being, um, you know, focused on my needs and my desires and my wants? Or is this habit pulling me out of myself and making me focus on something else yeah. or someone else? Yeah. And so, when it comes to the aspect of worship in particular, our habits when we come into church as a Baptist or a, a, an Anglican or a Catholic or Orthodox doesn't matter, right? When we come to church to worship God, it's important for us to ask the question: Are the is the ritual that I'm going through is it designed to bring the focus to me and and what makes me happy and what makes me comfortable? Or is this habit designed to pull me out of myself and direct my attention towards the other, which yeah. in that particular context is Christ, right? So, and, and again, like you just said, whether we like to think about it or whether we take the time to think about it or not, even subconsciously, the routines that we get in, they do that right like they mm. until until you until you take it away, you don't realize it like like as an Orthodox right until you take away the cushioned seats right <laughs> that you had as a Baptist, you don't realize how you know that really messes with your mood right when you, when you yeah. go into worship and you're like, oh I've got to stand the whole time or I've got to either you know stand or sit on this hard floor right like but it it, it forces you to, to really contemplate and think, well, why am I here in the first place? I'm not here to be conquerable. I'm here to, mm-hmm. you know, so that these, these habits that we form, they, they either direct our attention towards ourselves, right? Or they direct our yeah. attention yeah. towards the other. Uh, and it's the same way in any, any relationship, right? Like whether it's to husband wife or whatever, right? Like the, the habits we form. Um, if, if I have the habit of walking in the door and throwing my shoes, you know, somewhere or my clothes, you know, like it's a habit, but why is that habit there? Well, because I don't care. But as soon as I'm married and I realize my wife, you know, that matters to her. Then every time I walk in the door and I'm tempted to just take my stuff off and throw it wherever I have to stop and have to say, well, hold on, wait just a second. Right. Like it's not about me anymore.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Right. So I have to form a new habit that's focused on. Another, and I'm st- still working on the, that, by the way, because yeah. she's going to listen to this. And if I don't say that, I'm going to get in trouble. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, it, 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 yeah, I, I don't I don't want to keep going because you need to go back and listen to episode three if, if you want, you yeah. know, like a full yeah. rundown of, of all that.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, that, that was. Uh, and I, there was a word you used more than once in there that I think is really uh, important it's a controversial word, but it's an important word and then segues perfectly into what we're going to talk about in this episode. And that was the word ritual. Hmm. Now, growing up a Baptist, I was always under the impression that rituals were bad, uh, that ritual or, or rituals were either bad or at best neutral. Mm-hmm. That a ritual wasn't something you really wanted to get into because it, it made your worship formulaic. And I think we mentioned this the other day. You know, stifle the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't want us to be ritualistic and do the same thing over and over again. It wants to be wants to be free and you know, like the wind, all that kind of thing. Um, and so that was one of the things that we didn't like about Catholics, mm-hmm. all the ritual because right. there was so much ritual that you could come to, you could go to church as a Catholic, and you could just perform the ritual and not have your heart in it, not have your mind in it, but be good, because all that matters is that you did the right thing or said the right thing. And unlike us Baptists, who were all about the... kind of like all about the spontaneity, you know, like uh, you never know what you're going to get when you go to a Baptist service, But which is partially true. But partially not true. Right, right. Um, Baptist services in a hundred different churches over a span of years... Will have things that look different, but they'll have a lot of things that look very much the same. Baptist sure. churches, uh, and this isn't to me. This isn't bad. This is because it's necessary. They have their own rituals, sure. um, and but it's a it's a word that, at least in my experience growing up, Baptist is a word that they don't really want to use uh, to describe themselves and and kind of stay away from, um, and associate with traditions like Catholicism and Orthodoxy, but, but you have to have rituals. You, you have them whether you want them or not. It's, it's the natural state of humanity to right. create patterns, to create habits, to create rituals. And so I think we touched on this last week, uh, or last episode as well. It's not so much whether or not you have rituals, it's where your rituals come from.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Well, what, what where your rituals come from and I think it may be in like a, in a, in a sneaky way, it may be this, a different way of asking the same question, but it, it goes back to what I said a minute ago, where your rituals come from and what do your rituals force you to focus on?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Right.
0: Are, are your rituals designed for the self or for the other? Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in, in their nature, you now I, again, I, I don't, I'm not. I, I have opinions about the rituals that we had as Southern Baptist, right? Because I was a Southern Baptist for a long time, um, and, and I'm, I'm just going to throw all my cards out on the table and say that I, I, just being where I am now, I'm of the opinion that that where both of us are at in different ways, is is far more other focused in, in the ritual than what we grew up with. Yeah. Right. Uh, right. They're, they're far more focused on pulling us out of ourselves and, and, and trying to force us to focus on why we're really there and who we're really there for.
1: Yes. Yes. And when you, when you said other focus, I was going to add, not only in a sense of focused on someone other than ourselves, but focused on what Orthodox tradition sometimes refers to, and Catholic tradition probably as well, but focused on the other, on the holy other, Mm -hmm. which is God. So there are lots of different ways, lots of different rituals that both of our traditions have. uh, But there are a couple we touched on earlier that are, while not, I wouldn't say unique to our respective traditions, uh, are probably more readily associated with them. Sure. And uh, for orthodoxy, we mentioned earlier, it's the use of icons, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. But for there, there's a thing, there's a ritual that is probably, I wouldn't say the most associated with Catholicism. It, when people see it, I think they think of Catholicism mm-hmm. first, um, yeah. even though other traditions do it. But you're going to talk a little bit about it and, and uh, in the context of the Catholic tradition. So I'm going to let you go first and, and kind of lead the discussion on that one.
0: Okay, cool. Um, so we're going to talk, I'm, I'm going to talk about making the sign of the cross, which again, like you said, if you see it in a movie or you see it, um, well, I, don't, I don't know, on a TV show, I don't know where else to see it. So you see somebody at work, do it right before they, you know, eat their meal or whatever. Like, I, Like nine and a half times out of 10, right? Your first thought is going to be, Oh, they must be Catholic. Yeah. yeah. Right. No, I can. Other traditions do make the sign of the cross, but just in our context in America, like that's just what people think of. They think, oh, Mm -hmm. Catholicism, uh, you know, particularly Roman Catholicism. Yeah. So I'm not gonna explain what it is. It's pretty simple. Most people know what it is. But the the question is, okay, so why why this? Like why why do we why do we make the sign of the cross and uh where where did that come from? I, I will I will say that I'm I, I I don't know any primary sources to send anyone to. There are websites I could send you to, and I may uh put put those in the notes um like in the description of the podcast when it when it comes out, some links that people could, could go look at if they want. Uh, but there's within the first like couple hundred years after jesus right so some of the the people that studied under the apostles when they when they wrote about the habits and the traditions of the church right within within just like a generation or two uh it's it's talked about as if though it's just common practice that people would make the sign of the cross right so they would take their fingers put them together start at the forehead you know make the sign of the cross and so then the question is, okay, well, well why would you do that? Like what what's the point? Does it have some sort of special powers or Are you warding off evil spirits, like what yeah, the what's the point? Yeah, I I mean, why not? It's, it's both and maybe, right? Um <laughs> so so the idea though primarily is okay, why why do we why do we form this habit? And I think it goes back to something you said about orthodoxy like I don't know if it was the first or the second episode, but just the the, the hyper focus in worship in that tradition on prayer. Like everything's a prayer, hmm. right? And so whenever Catholics and Orthodox make the sign of the cross, they always, um, in our minds, we're supposed to be focused on. I, I would I would argue two primary things, right? Um, one is. Who we serve, right? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right. It's yeah. a again, it's a it's a physical habit, something that we do. It's a threefold act, right? Up, down, and to, and to the side. Um that causes us to remember who it is that we serve,
1: right? Yeah.
0: It's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Uh, and and all that's encapsulated in that right so I read somewhere the other day that it was it's almost like a, a mini version of the Nicene Creed right yeah, it's just this yeah, this that. quick this quick punch reminder of what we're supposed to believe as Christians right um, it's also a reminder of the one who died on the cross and all that he did or accomplished by his death on the cross uh, so somebody else I read, said that it's almost like a renewal of your baptismal covenant, right, or your baptismal promises when you're baptized uh, into the church. Um, you renounce Satan and all of his evil works. You, I mean, you, you confess a belief in uh, the creed and what it says about what we believe, all this kind of stuff, right? But it's, it's, a, it's a reminder of what Jesus did and the suffering that he endured and all that that suffering purchased for us as his as his, so it's a reminder of his cro- of of Christ on the cross, and reminder that one of the things that Christ purchased was me, right? <laughs> that I don't belong to myself. You know, I I'm I'm covering my in in, a, in like in a symbolic way. I'm I'm reminding myself that I've been covered by the the death and the blood of Christ. That I yeah. don't belong to yeah. myself anymore. That even my prayer, right, the the prayer I, I make over my food, or that I pray over my my wife or my family, or for a friend, or you know at church before I partake in the Eucharist, or anything that I do, that it's all been brought under the Lordship of Christ because of what He did for me on the cross. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a it's a remembrance of who we be, who who we believe in, mm-hmm. what we believe. It's a reminder of, uh, who we belong to and what the cost was for us to be purchased. And that it, it encompasses everything. Like we talked about last week that his incarnation and what he did, it, he took possession of, of everything, all that I am, everything that I do. Um, and I belong to him. So, so even when the saints, uh, or, teachers or doctors of the church like St. Augustine or Thomas Aquinas or, you know, anybody throughout history, a lot of them will talk about how it's a, it's a, it is a defense against um, Satan, right? Or in moments of temptation or, you know, things like that. And the question would be, well, why do you believe that? Well, because it's a, it's a mini prayer. It's a, Mm -hmm. it's a quick reminder and a petition and, and a reminder that I don't belong to me. I belong to Christ. So, so when we're experiencing temptation or something like that, we make the sign of the cross. It's a it's a it's a prayer, it's a reminder to us and to I would argue to Satan or you know wherever the temptation's coming from, that's like, hey, I don't belong to you, right? Like I, I belong to Christ. He he purchased me with his blood. And so it's a it's a habit that we do that reminds us of many things and and is a prayer in and of itself in the sense that it's a it's a ta- in a weird in a weird way I would argue it's a tangible prayer
1: sure it's yeah.
0: it's a prayer that we make with our our body mm. right not just our words but with all that we are um it's a cry to the lord for help in times of temptation it's a reminder to ourselves when we feel like we just uh are focusing on ourselves too much or we've got a problem or whatever it's a reminder to ourselves that uh we were bought with a price that we serve the triune god who who created all things and will redeem all things at the end of time uh that i mean it's 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 so there's so much packed into it now, can you get into a habit that is thoughtless and do it without thinking about all those things? sure. Oh
1: yeah.
0: You can, you can get into any habit. You can get into selfish habits and not think about how they're selfish. Oh
1: yeah. That's usually the case.
0: Right. 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 So, you know, to somebody that would say, well, but you don't want to do it, you know, anything you do over and over again, you just kind of lose its significance. Right. Like you don't, you know, you don't want it. Well, I would, I mean, I would argue, I would rather get in the habit of doing something good. Right.
1: Yeah.
0: And and it be there, then, because you're going to fill your time with something. You're always going to have habits, whether they're good habits or bad habits, whether they're selfish or self-centered habits, or whether they're focused on something else, like in this instance, Christ and who we are in relationship to him. And so yeah, yeah. you either have a, a self-ish habit that you don't think about, or you have a habit that, and that's and that's forming you to be selfish in a, Subliminal, unconscious way, right? Or you yeah. can be doing something that is supposed to and, and that does shape and form us, even when we're not thinking about it, to be focused on Christ. And then, and then, I mean, hopefully, there are moments more often than not where you do think about it, right? Like it, it does cross your mind. Oh, yeah, you know, I, you know, I do this because of, you know, reason X, Y, and Z. And, um, so anyway, the sign of the cross, that's, that's, uh, it's something that has it been pretty prominent for a really long time in Christian history. It's something that carries a lot of different layers of meaning and and purpose. Um, it's it's not just one thing or the other. It's it's a lot of things I think going on at once. But something that I've I've found to be uh, really helpful, you know, when I pray or when I um, when I'm going throughout my day and I'm I'm struggling with something or. Struggling to, to think on things that are, you know, good and and noble and pure and uh, or a whole host of other situations, just to sort of remind me of who he is and who I am in relationship to that because of what he's done for me.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I, that's uh, as you said, Orthodox um, make the sign of the cross as well, and it's something that I've really come to value, I mean, I mean the right word, but uh, a, a habit or a ritual, or, or like you said, a, I think you called it a tangible prayer, which I think is such a mm-hmm. great way to put it because it is, I mean, wh- wh- what's the thought or what's the idea that, uh, that only our tongues can pray? You mm-hmm. know, um, I don't, I don't know why the, why we tend to think that, uh, that because our tongues can make words, only our tongues can pray. Um, mm. whereas when you look at stories through the Bible of people praying, yeah, it also includes, um, their tongue and words, but it also includes them doing physical things, throwing themselves right. on the ground, um, pleading, you know, uh, grabbing the, the helm of somebody's garment, um, Prayer is—there's not many instances that I can think of in the Old Testament or the New, I guess, where someone is praying without there being some language or at least some implied context from previous stories that would lead you to believe that praying means they're doing certain things with their body as well, taking a certain Mm -hmm. posture— facing a certain direction, um, you know, um, as part of that prayer. Right. So the idea of making the sign of a cross, making the sign of a cross as a tangible prayer, I think is, is a really, really adept way to put it. Um, that it's not, it's not just the magic. Well, if you do this, make this little sign, you know, that no harm will come to you. But, as you said, because it is a kind of prayer, that's where its usefulness comes in uh, mm-hmm. in, in things like resisting temptation or um, keeping oneself pure. Because it is a thing. Because temptation is, is so often it's a state of the mind or a state of the heart. It's a desire being put where it doesn't belong, being acted on at a time it ought not be. And the defense against that is, and always has been, prayer. Um, And so the sign of the cross is a defense against it, not because when you draw a cross on yourself in the air, demons, like, you know, fall back like a vampire looking at a garlic pizza or something, um, but because it's you praying. And when you pray, you are asserting, you're either sort of asserting this dominance over your desire or you're admitting to God that you're incapable of asserting that dominance over the desire and you're you're calling on his mercy um, and yeah that uh, making a sign of the cross can be a way of doing that and I think that's such a beautiful Are you there um, beautiful thing so Adam talked about sign of the cross and I yeah you know, I think I think making the sign of the cross is such a beautiful thing and is something that like he said um, when you see somebody do it, on film, on a show, just out in, in life. For me growing up, the first thing I thought was and I'll add, always kind of thought it with like a disappointing tone of voice in my brain, like, oh they're kind of look like, <laughs> like, oh look, he said, you know, like watching a, a baseball game or something and then the pitcher, you know, the winning pitcher. I think I think I remember this was Mariano Rivera who pitched for the, the Yankees. But it may have been somebody else. You know, in his interview, he gives glory to God. And you're like, oh, cool, he's a Christian. And then when he's done with the interview, he like makes the sign of the cross and then like points up. And you're like, oh, Catholic, which as a Baptist <laughs> is another way of saying it, is fake Christian, right? Not a mm-hmm. Christian. Um, well, for Orthodox, one of the things that is probably most associated with Orthodoxy, uh, and it's one of the things that I've noticed is distinct not in that orthodoxy is the only tradition that has this but it seems to be more prevalent in orthodoxy than other traditions sure that's the use of icons um orthodoxy is very very big on icons and i'll be honest that was really weird for me and it's still sometimes odd because if you're familiar with um uh the, the the iconography of the eastern church it's a very distinct look.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and somehow over the course of a couple thousand years of, of, of iconography, they, it's a very distinct style. And yet you know Eastern Orthodox uh, iconography when you see it. Even no. if you look at two pieces that are painted maybe hundreds of years apart and at two different places that are hundreds of miles away, It's cultivated this distinct look that is pretty uh, unmistakable, and that's on purpose because the Orthodox Church views icons in a very special light. It's more than just art; it is something far beyond just decorative. So, um, there's a great, great uh, link that I'll send to Adam for him to add into the description when we post this, this um, when we upload this episode. I think it's a transcript of a lecture um, a priest gave on icons that uh, goes into a lot more detail on some of the points I'm about to make. That really, really gets into why um, icons are so used and so um, respected and seen as necessary within the Orthodox Church. Um, but I'm gonna—I'll give a few highlights. And one of the things I'll do is—is is kind of touch on why and how I've come to appreciate icons and iconography. Um, Let me see, let me find my note. And In in a sense, to boil it down, icons matter because icons represent this idea that images are as capable and as necessary to convey... um, the divine reality as our words. Um, growing up Baptist is, is to grow up in a tradition that's very, very word centric, that looks at words and particularly the written word of the Bible and the spoken word of a sermon as being primary means by which the gospel is conveyed. And I absolutely one hundred percent agree that the gospel is conveyed through the writings of Scripture and is conveyed through what we say, and and that's that's what Baptists emphasize and and I would say overemphasize, but in Orthodoxy, through icons, there's this great respect for images. There's this great respect for. Um, really for this concept of a holy icon, of holy image that runs through the entirety of Scripture, that really begins, uh, I would say, and the church probably says as well, all the way back in Genesis. Uh, the idea of physical things, being able to bear and carry an image of the divine as a means of revelation really begins with Genesis, really begins with God making man in his image. That's a very similar, if not the same word, that is also translated icon. Iconography has its roots in creation. Man was the first icon, uh, the first icon of God. He was the first image bearer, the first icon of divine reality was man. And then... You can look at other passages like in Exodus, where when God, excuse me, you can look at other passages in Exodus, like when God gives the instructions on how the tabernacle is to be crafted, some of the tapestries, in fact, even the veil that separates the holy from the most holy place, it's woven with images, with these these images of angels of the heavenly scene. And that's present, the, the, the people of God took that wherever they went, this divinely mandated icon. And while it's true that in the Old Testament, there's also this um, uh, uh, prohibition of making icons or images of God, God himself is the one that eventually breaks that down when he images himself into Christ. And here comes Christ, who is God, As a man, man who is the image bearer of God, and now is also in this strange way that had never been seen before, also God. And so Christ becomes sort of the prototypical icon. We look at him and see God. That's what it says in John, is the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld him and his glory. And then in Colossians, it says we saw in him the image of the invisible God, that which had been invisible by its very nature and also by its proclamation was made visible through the incarnation of God. And this idea of being able to see divine reality through this continuation of the idea of man being the image bearer of God Begins in Adam, you would say, I think, perfected in Christ, and continues into the church, and part of the way it continues is through the use of icons, through these very, very odd, weird pictures that when you look at them, you think, no human being actually looks like that in real life. (laughs) That's part of the point of, of iconography in the Orthodox Church, is that it's not really meant to look like what life looks like now. Um, but and the lecture that I'll link to in the description talks about this more. It's meant to kind of give an idea of what perfected reality is to look like. All the icons you see are of saints or of saintly, you might say, beings like angels who have been in their through their um, through their joining together with God or through their presence with being in the presence of God, as with angels, are perfected. Are made perfect. And so to us, it's sort of this really clear, stark idea that to us, they're going to look strange because we look at them with eyes that are corrupt and defiled. And that's something that, (coughs) excuse me, icons are meant to capture and meant to portray and meant to show. And so if you go into an Orthodox service, uh, you are going to walk into a room that's covered. Uh, with icons, all the walls, the ceiling even. There's the iconostasis in the front of the room. Icons everywhere because the church teaches that icons are, uh, I, I did not write down who said it, but it's the gospel in color. And I think that's such a beautiful idea of icons being the gospel in color. Um, another church father called them to contemplate in color. another one said that icons are the gospel for the illiterate. For those who cannot read the the word uh, of, of scripture can look with their eyes upon the word presented in the icons. And the icons in that sense draw us nearer to God. Um, they remind us that originally in creation, God put his image on man, that man through his sin corrupted it, that Christ through his incarnation redeems it. And the icons are these reminders of all, well, they're two things really, two things in all sort of. They're reminders for me, they serve as reminders of saints that have been, saintly lives that have been lived, um, holiness that was achieved, seems like the wrong word, but holiness that was, obtained or or met holy lives that were lived so i I look at icons when i go to church and i see i see encouragement i see inspiration i see a testimony of faithfulness not just of saints to god but more importantly of god to his saints so in that sense icons are reminders but in another sense icons are and this is where it gets weird (laughs) But icons, uh, some traditions in the church teach. I don't know if this is a big T tradition or a little T tradition. My priest will probably tell me if I ask him or if he listens. But that that icons, in a way, put us in the fellowship of those saints. That to have an icon of a saint is to, in a real sense, have that saint with you. Just like, or, or sort of as to have a human, another human with you is to have God with you in a sense because that person is an image, is an icon of God. And that odd-looking painting on our wall or on the church's wall is an icon of that saint. And so in a sense, that saint is there with us, encouraging us, interceding on our behalf because as a saint who is now in perfect Uh, relation with god they love us just as god loves us and so intercede for us on our uh, intercede on our behalf just like those who love us would intercede on our behalf so icons are these things that at first like those are really weird and they still look weird (laughs) but it's become one of those things that demonstrate the beauty of orthodoxy to me Because Orthodoxy views the gospel as something outside of the boundaries of just a written word. And the gospel is not just read and contemplated as an idea, but the gospel can be gazed upon and contemplated as beautiful. It inspires us not through just giving us instruction in written word, but it inspires us through showing us a glimpse of the reality that is yet to be in Christ that is, and is not yet in Christ. And it also reminds us of the, the eternal nature of the church, that there was not yesterday's church in today's church. There was not last year's church in this year's church. There is not the church a hundred years ago and the church today. There's only one church. I am part of the same church that those saints were and are part of. And the church is never separated from each other. That's, that's really what I love and admire about icons.
0: Well, you've made it to the end of episode four of This Heretical Life. This is Adam again. Thanks for spending some time with us as we talked about the things that we've grown to love and appreciate about our, about our respective traditions. Uh, you know, I, I hope that we've done well enough that at the very least you can kind of understand where we come from as Catholic and Orthodox, respectively. And if you are Catholic or Orthodox, I hope it was an encouragement to you uh, to really think and meditate about the reasons why you do the things that you do, the reason you do the things that the Church has asked you to do in worship. Thanks for tuning in again, and just to let you know, we actually have started a Twitter account for this podcast. So if you want to find us on Twitter, you can find us there. If you have questions, comments, uh, ideas for future podcasts, maybe there's some questions that you have for us, like, okay, well, what about this aspect of your conversion? Or why do you guys believe this? We'd love to hear it, and we would love to put it in the lineup of things to talk about. Or maybe there's something we've talked about in the last few episodes that we didn't explain well, and you'd just like some clarification. Uh, We'd love for that kind of feedback, too. So you can find us on Twitter. You can find myself, Adam, or Brian on Facebook as well, so you can message us there. We're in the works of trying to get a Facebook page set up and email address and all that kind of stuff so that you guys can contact us a little easier. Uh, But either way... Uh, we hope to hear from you and we hope that you should come back next time for episode five. Uh, so thanks so much and I will see you next time.